Richard Schechner is University Professor of Performance Studies at New York University currently. At NYU, Schechner was among the founders of the Drama Department at the prestigious Tisch School of the Arts. In 1980, the Drama Department became the Performance Studies Department, and since then, NYU Performance Studies has been a leading exponent of new interdisciplinary thinking, linking scholarship and artistic practice to anthropology, feminism, post-structuralism, queer theory, political and cultural studies, and theories of the avant-garde. In 1967, Schechner founded the Performance Group, with whom he directed a number of productions, including Dionysus in 69, Brecht's Mother Courage, Shepard's The Tooth of Crime, and Genet's The Balcony. He's also directed widely in various parts of the world, including the Oresteia in Taiwan, in his own adaptation translated into Chinese, The Cherry Orchard in New Delhi, and August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in South Africa, where it was the first play by an African-American to be staged professionally. Prior to the performance group, Schechner was a producing director of the Free Southern Theater, one of the three founding directors of the New Orleans group, and the founding artistic director of the East End Players of Provincetown, Mass. Among Schechner's many awards are Lifetime Achievement Awards from Performance Studies International and the Association of Theater and Higher Education, a Guggenheim, two Fulbrights, an NEH Senior Research Fellowship, the Mandela Prize, and an honorary doctorate from the Hong Kong Academy for Performing Arts. He is Artistic Director of East Coast Artists and Editor of TDR, a Journal of Performance Studies. Schechner is the author of a number of books, including Environmental Theater, The End of Humanism, Performance Theory, Between Theater and Anthropology, and The Future of Ritual, which have been translated into over 10 languages. He has worked with such notables as anthropologist Victor Turner, theater legend Jerzy Grotowski, actors Spalding Gray and Willem Dafoe, behavioral scientist Dr. Paul Ekman, pornographer Annie Sprinkle, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, and yoga guru Krishnamachari. It was as a graduate student at NYU's performance studies that I first studied directing with Richard. My final directing project for his course was an adaptation of Kafka's In the Penal Colony, and I am very proud to say that he absolutely tore it to pieces. <laughs> he completely annihilated it with his critique. But of course, it is only with such rigorous critique that students are able to learn and grow, and I have been proud to continue to share my work with Richard over the years to much better responses. And I'm honored to be collaborating with him on a project inspired by the work of Spalding Gray to debut in 2010. As one of Richard's former students, many of my earliest experiences here at Colorado College included elaborate accounts from several senior professors of the infamous production of Dionysus in 69, which graced our Armstrong stage in 1969. Memories of the performance included nudity, orgies, drugs, arrests, and always bemused sideways glances and guilty smirks at having witnessed and participated in the irreverent avant-garde performance. It is in this irreverent spirit that Colorado College has brought Richard here tonight for his lecture entitled 9-11 as avant-garde art, question mark. As Richard states in his book, Performance Studies and Introduction, if performance studies can study anything as performance, how can the 9-11 attack and untold other violent acts pass and ongoing and whatever is still to become be studied? I know that many questions are unanswered. Asking them is what performance studies is all about. I look forward to the questions that will arise from tonight's exciting lecture. It is my deepest honor to introduce Richard Schechner. Please help me welcome him to the stage.
Thank you very much. Before we begin, we're going to see a few pictures, but I want to thank uh, Dick Celeste and Tom Lindblade and uh, Leon uh, Amaris for making my visit here and the people that I've met and re-met. Uh, so I'm very glad, and I hope that after the presentation, we'll have a chance for some uh, discussion, agreement, disagreement. So but let's begin with a few pictures, please. Turn off the. Turn that off, please. In a word, and I'm quoting here from a man named Daniel Dian, hermeneutic terrorism becomes a powerful weapon by leaving the gaps or blanks in its message available for ad libbing. One can almost talk of an interactive terrorism, a, of a karaoke of types of sorts. I am amazed to see that so many artists or intellectuals have been ready and willing to sing in tune with the September 11th terrorists, and that the improvised statements of Gunter Grass, Arundhati Roy, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, Jean-Marie Straub, Daniel Huillet could hardly be distinguished from those of bin Laden himself. Second quotation. This is Julian Borger. An American general in Baghdad called Iraq a work of art in progress yesterday, 3 November 2006, one of the most extraordinary attempts by the U.S. military leadership to put a positive spin on the worsening violence. On a day in which 49 people were killed or found dead around the country, Major General William Caldwell, the chief military spokesman, argued that Iraq was in transition, a process that was, quote, not always a pleasant thing to watch. Every great work of art goes through messy phases while it is in transition. A lump of clay can become a sculpture. Blobs of paint become paintings which inspire, unquote, Major General Caldwell told journalists in Baghdad's fortified green zone. Now I'm quoting Carl Heinz Stockhausen, a composer, passed away in 2007, but he said this, uh, September 17, 2001. The attacks of 9-11 were the greatest work of art imaginable for the whole cosmos. Minds achieving something in an act that we couldn't even dream of in music, people rehearsing like mad for 10 years, preparing fanatically for a concert and then dying. Just imagine what happened there. You have people who are that focused on a performance and then 5,000 people are dispatched to the afterlife in a single moment. I couldn't do that. By comparison, we composers are nothing. Artists, too, sometimes try to go beyond the limits of what is feasible and conceivable so that we wake up, so that we can open ourselves to another world. It's a crime because those involved didn't consent. They didn't come to the, quote, concert, quote, that's obvious. And no one announced that they risked losing their lives. 
what happened in spiritual terms, the leap out of security, out of what is usually taken for granted, out of life, that sometimes happens to a small extent in art, too. Otherwise, art is nothing. And the final introductory quotation from Vernon Hyde Minor. Nearly everyone in the world knows and has some deeply held personal response to what happened in New York City and Washington, D.C. on September 11, 2001. The extraordinary sight of wide-bodied Boeing airplanes speeding like bullets down Manhattan Island at near the speed of sound, a mere 500 to 800 feet above the busy streets, then smashing into the city's tallest buildings, eventually reducing them to rubble. These sublime acts of terror stunned the world. In a sense, we witnessed two types of the sublime as defined by Kant, the terrifying and the splendid. The terrifying arises from the great power and speed of these projectiles ha carrying helpless, unknowing passengers and the dreadful toll and loss of li lost lives. The splendid results from the magnificence of the airplanes and the remarkable gargantuan architecture of the Twin Towers." Unquote. Now Schechner. In the USA, dialing 911, pronounced 911, is the way to call for help in an emergency. 9-11, pronounced 9-11, is the universal signifier of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack on New York's World Trade Center towers and the Pentagon. 911 has been the emergency number to dial in the USA since 1968. So it, can it be an accident that whoever coined the phrase 9-11 didn't know of its prior use, or that the date the terrorists selected was accidental? In their own view, were the attackers making an emergency call or forcing Americans into a horrible crisis? On October 7, 2001, less than a month after the attacks of 9-11, Osama bin Laden made the following statement, quote, God Almighty hit the United States at its most vulnerable spot. He destroyed its greatest buildings. Praise be to God. Here is the United States. It was filled with terror from its north to its south and from its east to its west. Praise be to God, unquote. How was all America, east, west, north, south, to be, quote, filled with terror, unquote, if not by the swift and saturating dissemination of the news and images of the attack? Those pictures you saw all were from September 12th, and they were pretty much all of the same thing. They were of the second plane, the fireball, because no one was there to take the first plane, and enough time had elapsed between the first and the second for people to be there to take this picture and its variation. Important point I want you to remember. And what was the USA's, quote, most vulnerable spot? Quote, that's Osama bin Laden. What was the USA's most vulnerable spot, if not the imaginations of its people? And who, in bin Laden's view, was the attacker? Not Al-Qaeda, but God Almighty. As with the plagues against Egypt in Moses' day, God himself is the doer of the horror according to Osama bin Laden. 9-11 was a successful assault on the imagination. You know that when you see these pictures and what they re-evoke in you. Americans and the rest of the world saw what they never thought they would see. America was wounded by non-state actors, by terrorists. And what kind of wound was it? 
Spectacularly, the American state suffered a defeat on September 11th, and spectacularly for this state does not mean superficially or, or epiphenomenally. The state was wounded in September in its heart of hearts. The horrors of September 11th were designed above all to be visible. September's terror was different than the firebombing of Dresden or the atom bombing of Hiroshima or Nagasaki. It was premised on the belief learned from the culture it wishes to annihilate that a picture is worth a thousand words, that a picture in the present condition of politics is itself, if sufficiently well executed, a specific and effective piece of statecraft. Not statecraft as we know it, neither a treaty nor a declaration of war in the ordinary sense. 9-11 exploded Americans' sense of well-being and security. No one who saw 9-11, and a large percentage of the world's population did see it again and again, will forget it. From that day forward, New York's downtown skyline was marked by an absence. There's where they were, is the common explanation accompanying a pointing finger. Absence is the motif of the memorial, which, quote, will consist of two massive pools set within the footprints of the Twin Towers, unquote. And the American response? It is unlikely but possible that President George W. Bush's speechwriters knew Immanuel Kant's assertion that, quote, the sublime is the name given to what is absolutely great, what is beyond all comparison great, unquote. What is, quote, terrifying and splendid, quote. When they put, quote, shock and awe into the pre president's mouth to describe the American March 2003 air assault on Baghdad kicking off the second Iraq war. Bush wanted to make sure that the USA answered spectacle with spectacle. Without doubt, the speech writers, writers knew of Harlan K. Ullman and James P. Wade's 1996 book, Shock and Awe, Achieving Rapid Dominance, published by the National Defense University. Absolutely true is that Bang on a Can, a music group, quote, with an ear for the new, the unknown, and the unconventional, unquote, New Stockhausen's, quote, greatest work of art imaginable, quote, when they put his Stimmung as the, quote, culminating piece of a 12-hour marathon ending early on the morning of June 1st, 2008 at the World Financial Center Winter Garden, right down the block from where the trade center. But Stockhausen aside, how can anyone persist in calling the 9-11 attack on the trade towers a work of art? Of what value is such a designation? What does calling the destruction of the trade towers a work of art assert about performance, about art, the authenticity of, quote, what really happened, quote, and social morality during and after the first decade of the 21st century? To even begin to address these questions, I need to refer to the history of the avant-garde because it has been avant-garde artists who for more than a century have called for the violent destruction of existing aesthetic, social, and political systems. A French origin, the word avant-garde, cognate to vanguard and van, has been used in English since the end of the 15th century. The OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, states that the avant-garde is, quote, the foremost part of an army, quote, but also uh, the most advanced form of art. At the turn of the 19th century, the term avant-garde was taken up by social activists, utopians and artists, to signify those ahead of the rest of society. The word kept its militancy, especially among artists. Here's a few examples, 
exemplary quotations, roughly decade by decade, from a large repertory. 1909, from F.T. Marinetti's Futurist Manifesto, quote, we want to exalt moments of aggression, feverish sleeplessness, the double march, the perilous leap, the slap, and the blow with the fist. Beauty exists only in struggle. There is no masterpiece that is not an aggressive character. Poetry must be a violent assault on the forces of the unknown to force them to bow before man. We want to demolish museums and libraries, fight morality, feminism, and all opportunist and utilitarian cowardice. Let the good incendiaries with charred fingers come. Here they are. Heap up the fire to the shelves of the libraries. Divert the canals to flood the cellars of the museums. Let the glorious canvases swim ashore. Take the picks and hammers. Undermine the foundation of vulnerable towns. For art can only be violence, cruelty, injustice." Unquote. 1918, from Tristan Sara's Dada Manifesto, quote, I assure you, there is no beginning and we are not afraid. We aren't sentimental. We are like a raging wind that rips up the clothes of clouds and prayers. We are, uh, we are preparing the great spectacle of disaster, conflagration, and decomposition, preparing to put an end to mourning and to replace tears by sirens spreading from one continent to another. I destroy the drawers of the brain and those of social organization, to sow demoralization everywhere and throw heaven's hand into hell, hell's eyes into heaven, to reinstate the fertile wheel of a universal circus in the powers of reality and the fantasy of every individual." Unquote. 1938, from Leon Trotsky and Andy Breton's manifesto towards a free revolutionary art. And Breton, of course, was a surrealist. True art, quote, true art, which is not content to play variations on ready-made models, but rather insists on expressing the inner needs of man and mankind in its time. True art is unable not to be revolutionary, not to aspire to a complete and radical reconstruction of society. We believe that the supreme task of art in our epoch is to take part actively and consciously in the preparation of the revolution." Unquote. 1948, from the Quebecois artist's global refusal, Quote, the religion of Christ has dominated the world. See what it has turned into. Sister faiths have now begun to exploit each other. Christian civilization is coming to an end. The decline of Christianity will bring down with it all the people and all the classes that it has influenced, from the first to the last, from the highest to the lowest. The rats are already fleeing a sinking Europe by crossing the Atlantic. However, events will eventually overtake the greedy, the gluttonous, the Sybarites, the unperturbed, the blind, and the deaf. They will be mercilessly swallowed up. We must abandon the ways of society once and for all and free ourselves from its utilitarian spirit. We must not willingly neglect our spiritual side. We accept full responsibility for the consequences of our total refusal." Unquote. 1960, from the Situationist Manifesto, quote, the existing framework cannot subdue the new human force that is increasing day by day alongside the irresistible development of technology and the dissatisfaction of its possible uses in our senseless social life. Alienation and oppression in this society cannot be distributed amongst a range of variants, but only rejected en bloc with this very society. All real progress has clearly been suspended until the revolutionary solution of the present multiform crisis." Unquote. 2006 after 2001, from the Art Guerrilla Manifesto, quote, 
Art Guerrilla is an art project which is open to all artists around the world who are ready for a guerrilla war in a multidimensional manner. This war has got a unique aim, recreate the soul of the arts. We know that this aim is indefinite. However, if we live in an, inde we live in an indefinite age, if our enemies use indefinite weapons against us, it is also our right to move in an indefinite and uncertain sea. Are you a cynical member of the academy? Do people criticize your works in a weird way? Do you live in the periphery of the world, Asia, Balkans, Middle East, Africa, South America? Or do you live in the peripheries of the center, wherever? Are you poor economically and rich in imagination? Do think or imagine a kind of liberation for contemporary society? Have you got any problem with the authorities? Long live guerrilla movement, in caps. Long live artist warriors of the movement. We will win, unquote. And finally, back up 76 years and listen to Antonin Artaud, whose importance to avant-garde theater is canonical, but who might also be writing a scenario for Al-Qaeda. 1933 from the Theater of Cruelty, unquote, quote rather. The Theater of Cruelty proposes to resort to a ma to mass spectacle, to seek in the agitation of tremendous masses convulsed and hurled against each other. A little of that poetry of festivals and crowds when all too rarely nowadays the people pour out into the streets. The theater must give us everything that is in crime, love, war, or madness if it wants to recover its necessity. In the same way that our dreams have an effect upon us and reality has an effect upon our dreams, so we believe that the images of thought can be identified with a dream which will be efficacious to the degree that it can be projected with the necessary violence. Hence this appeal to cruelty and terror on a vast scale." Unquote. Granted that Artaud stipulated, quote, the image of a crime presented in the requisite theatrical condition is something infinitely more terrible for the spirit than that same crime when actually committed, unquote. But in our day, the walls between the real and the virtual have crumbled. The theatrical and the actual have merged. And I believe what 9-11 offered was a spectacle of cruelty in the Artaudian sense, quote, terror on a vast scale, unquote. Taken together, the message coming from many key avant-garde artists and theorists insistently repeated for more than a century is crystal clear. Destroy the current order. Create a new order or anarchy. Are these manifestos mere ineffectual fantasies of powerless artists? Or do they set a tone that carries over from avant-garde art into popular entertainments? Indeed, so-called high art and pop have merged just as the news has melded into entertainment. But, you might argue, these manifestos and the violent popular entertainments are all part of Western culture, a civilization that Osama bin Laden and his allies explicitly despise, stand apart from, and wish to destroy. But is this really so? Al-Qaeda and other jihadists use the media and advanced technology from the internet to hijack jets the jihadist technological sophistication debunks the ruling myth that they are primitive cave dwellers living in tribal areas. First of all, no region is outside the global net, not even northeast Pakistan and Afghanistan, and no tribe or group of people is absolutely other. Paradoxically, the West and the jihadists occupy in very separate spheres from the point of view of values uh, uh, the jihadists and the West occupy very separate spheres from the point of view of values while sharing the same global system from the point of view of techniques. 
Osama bin Laden issues his fatwas over the internet, releases videotapes of his speeches, and exploits global financial instruments to pay for al-Qaeda's operations. In the media, where any mention is better than absence, jihadists and the warriors against terror compete for imagination space on the global stage. Almost as they were occurring, the 9-11 attacks were marketed as popular entertainment. Representations of attacks are paradigmatic of the accelerating conflation of news and entertainment, and not only in the USA. In Yue Ching, a newly industrialized city southwest of Shanghai, videos showing the attacks were for sale by September 14th. In larger cities, these videos were on the market even sooner. As Peter Hessler reported from China, quote, they stocked them on the same racks as the Hollywood movies. Often, the 9-11 videos were located in the cheaper sections alongside dozens of American films. All of the 9-11 videos have been packaged to look like Hollywood movies. I found a DVD entitled The Century's Greatest Catastrophe. The box front featured photographs of Osama bin Laden, George W. Bush, and the burning Twin Towers. On the back, a small icon noted that it had been rated R for violence and language. In the USA, news programs are sponsored. That is, the news is given in small temporal units, and after two or three items, there is another temporal unit, a commercial break. This format of program content and advertising, running sequentially, is the same for news, sports, drama, and various contestant shows, quiz shows, things like American Idol, etc., including reality TV. The exponential increase in reality TV, the presentation of apparently actual ordinary people in the midst of either their ordinary lives or more frequently in some real or cooked up crisis situation, further erases the boundary between the real, including news, and the made for entertainment. Internet sites such as YouTube and its many internet cognites further blurs the boundaries between the real and the fictional. The TV presentations of the 9-11 attacks soon took on the qualities of a made-for-TV drama series. Each of the networks found a melodramatic title for their coverage of the attacks and the consequent events. Within hours after the plane struck the Twin Towers, the networks gave dramatic titles to the coverage. CBS, Attack on America, ABC, America Under Attack, CNN, America's New War. A drumbeat began that led up to and into the bombing and invasion of Iraq in 2003. There was also much pathos. On September 14th, NBC aired, quote, America Mourns, quote, a heartbreaking, heartbreaking stories mixed with calls for dedicated patriotism. On the first anniversary of the attack, the networks aired such programs as, quote, the day that changed America, unquote, CBS, quote, report from ground zero, quote, ABC, and 9-11, the day America changed, unquote, Fox. You know, it's interesting that just as the pictures are the same, the titles are the same. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ur myth. It's a basic uh, uh, myth. The 9-11 attack segued into the American-led war against Iraq with its own titles on TV. It all went under the overall official rubric of, quote, the war on terror, unquote. The program style, titles, the style of presenting the news, the sequence of advertising and news items showed how television, more than any other media, marketed 9-11 and the second Iraq war as a made-for-television series. This series included many subplots. 
Reporters were embedded with the troops on the ground. There were daily suicide bombings and attacks of what the government and media called insurgents. Civilians were slaughtered in these bombings and also by the, American, the Allied military. Individual stories of death and wounds, pain and pathos were aired side by side with reports of the growing opposition to the war at home, as well as ritualized official reports of, quote, we're winning, unquote. Competing for attention in the emerging entertainment version of reality, President George W. Bush landed in a jet fighter on the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln, where a giant banner proclaimed, mission accomplished. Here, melodrama gave way to farce, as an American president performed a stage for the camera's stunt. And who stepped out of the plane, Bush or Tom Cruise? This conflation of news, staged media events, and actuality does not make the 9-11 attacks and the Iraq War, quote, art, quote, but it comes very close to the melodramatic form of the serial. For performance theorists and historians, the collapse of aesthetic categories was already familiar from Marcel Duchamp and Andy Warhol forward. The ordinary urinal, famous movie star, Marilyn Monroe, supermarket item, Campbell's soup cans, and high art have merged. At the extreme ends of the spectrum, the real urinal, the movie star, and the supermarket can uh, be distinguished from the masterpieces that hang in the august galleries of the Metropolitan Museum of, the art, of, the, of art. The distinctions at the extremes are very clear. But today, most of the art world and the real world live in between these extremes. The reporting and fictionalizing of 9-11, including the broadcasting and rebroadcasting of iconic images of the explosions, fires, destruction, aftermath, and war, constitute an absorption of events not only into the popular imagination, but also as ob objet des arts. On 9-11, there were four planes headed for their targets. Two torpedoed the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. One damaged the Pentagon, and the fourth plane, probably headed for the White House or Capitol, had its mission foiled by the resistance of the passengers and crashed in the woods of Pennsylvania. Given four planes and three targets, why almost immediately did 9-11 mean the destruction of the World Trade Center towers? New York is a real place, but it is also Batman's Gotham and Superman's metropolis. It is to many Americans simply the city quintessentially American and foreign simultaneously. Weirdly, I wonder if the jihadist knew Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. Quote, start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be part of it, New York, New York. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere, unquote. And why did the first attack occur at 8.45 a.m. Eastern time and the second at 9.03? If the planes had crashed into the towers three hours later, many more people would have died. If the two planes hit simultaneously, or nearly so, the media would not see an actual collision. You would not see those pictures, but only the aftermath. I believe the jihadists timed their hijackings as a one-two punch for maximum spectacular effect synchronized to the morning news cycle in New York and midday in Europe. Their intention was not to kill as many people as possible, but to reach as large a spectatorship in the West as possible. The World Trade Center was the epicenter not only of the attacks, but of the, of the imaginary that is, quote, 9-11, quote. And what kind of imaginary is that? When on September 16th, avant-garde composer Carl Heinz Stockhausen called the destruction of the World Trade Center the greatest work of art imaginable 
for the whole cosmos, his remark was greeted by rage and disgust. But also commenting on 9-11 on that day was the 1997 Nobel laureate for literature, Dario Fo, who circulated an email stating, quote, the great speculators wallow in an economy that every year kills tens of millions of people with poverty. So what is 20,000 sick, dead in New York? Regardless of who carried out the massacre, this violence is the legitimate daughter of the culture of violence, hunger, and inhumane exploitation, unquote. Why were Stockhausen's remarks met with outrage while foes hardly caused a ripple? In fact, I'm sure that some of you have heard of Stockhausen, and probably none of you had heard of what foe said. Because foe omitted art. Art is not as serious as politics. Art is play. Art is representation. However, from the perspective of performance studies, the attack on the World Trade Center was a performance, planned, rehearsed, staged, and intended both to wound the USA materially and to affect and infect the imagination. The destruction of two iconic buildings and the murder of so many people in one fell swoop was intended to deliver a very specific message about the boldness of the jihad and the vulnerability of the USA. But for all that, was the attack art? Or was it just using strategies adapted from art? I believe that the attack can be understood as the actualization of some key ideas driving a lot of avant-garde art. The attack was in direct succession to anarchist and futurist actions and manifestos, I've quoted some of them, destructive as with the Vienna actionists, massive as with Christos and Jean-Claude's drapings of buildings and landscapes. 9-11 was, quote, bad art in the ethical and moral sense, illegal art from the point of view of American law, but perhaps art of another kind from the jihadists and another vantage point. Is this kind of analysis, the kind I'm making, perverse, doing dishonor to the dead and injured? Does it grant the jihadists much more than they deserve? Stockhausen was actually envious of the jihadists. Quote, I couldn't do that. By comparison, we composers are nothing unquote, he said. He desired the most extreme place for art. Quote, artists too sometimes try to go beyond the limits of what is feasible and conceivable so that we wake up, so that we can open ourselves to another world, unquote. He was claiming an importance for art in the, quote, real world, quote. Not the art-like art that hangs in museums or is heard in concert halls and theaters, but the lifelike art Alan Caprow theorized and practiced Art that action, not represent art as action. Art that is action, not representation. Literary theorists Frank Lentricchia and Jody McAuliffe located Stockhausen's opinion among part of a long tradition of artistic fanatics. They write, quote, the desire beneath many romantic literary visions is for a terrifying awakening that would undo the West's economic and cultural order. As any avant-garde artist might, Stockhausen sees the devotion of high artistic seriousness in the complete commitment of the terrorists. Like the terrorists, serious artists are always fanatics. Unlike terrorists, serious artists have not yet achieved the, quote, greatest, quote, level of art, unquote. If this is so, where does it leave ordinary art and artists? A single attack has changed world history. What other art act, or what art act, if you don't want to grant this that status, 
has done that. Having just said this, I confess that I am very uncomfortable. I have reasoned my way into a position that I ethically reject. Maybe my way out is to assert that art requires artists who consciously choose to make art, and art that, and that art requires willing participants and observers. This surely is the humanist tradition, though not the tradition of many rituals whose ceremonies of animal and human sacrifices may be considered artistic. In other words, uh, I was circumcised at eight days. I didn't, uh, I, 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 like, I like the outcome, but I didn't agree to it. I'm sure many other men in this room similarly. And if we go into uh, various ritual practices, some of which are extremely powerful performatively, some of which are artistic, uh, agreement of the people upon whom it is done is not necessary. And uh, neither is it uh, necessarily taken by the receivers to be art, yet we can uh, begin to understand it more powerfully, more completely as art. Part of the reason we reject, or perhaps reject, looking at 9-11, because it wounded us, we're in the culture that was wounded, because it was so horrific from our ethical and humanist point of view, and I agree it was, uh, uh, and we cannot uh, uh, let cultural relativism excuse the act. We might be able to let cultural relativism excuse the Aztecs ripping out hearts because they no longer do it, or the Australian First Peoples performing sub-incision because they're not a major people and they're not doing it in downtown New York. So this is very complicated matter as far as I'm concerned. To return to the actors of 9-11, neither Muhammad Atta nor his crew thought of themselves as artists. They would absolutely reject the label of art. So they didn't think of themselves as artists, and they would reject the label art. They would reject the label of art in relation to their actions. If there is art in 9-11, in the sense that I'm trying to use it, it is in the reception. What Stockhausen imagined when he saw the media representations of the attack on the World Trade Center, or in the unfolding event and its aftermath, what visual artists, performance artists, writers, artists of any kind, do with what happened. There is nothing new in that. Goya and Picasso, not to mention Homer, Aeschylus, Vyasa, Shakespeare, Tolstoy, Hemingway, and many more have made masterpieces from the horrors of war. Lentricki and McAuliffe do not stop by situating the 9-11 attacks within a tradition of transgressive art. They go on to discuss 9-11 in relationship to popular culture. Uh, how soon after 9-11 the New York site of the attack became ground zero land a, quote, Mecca, how's that for irony, for tourists, and a site for nationalist myth-making in the Wagnerian tradition. Quote, on December 30, 2001, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani opened a viewing platform for the folk over the mystic gulf that is ground zero, a stage to which he urged Americans and everybody to come and experience, quote, all kinds of feelings of sorrow and then tremendous feelings of patriotism, unquote. How's that for a scenario? The platform's purpose is to connect tourists to their history at a site that perfectly conjoins terrorism, patriotism, and tourism, unquote. So even if the attacks themselves are not within the sphere of art, the aftermath becomes within the sphere of, of, of art. By now, the platform is gone, but its intention lives on in the work of the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation and the memorial that is going up there. I wish I had a neat conclusion to my ruminations. I don't. I cannot settle in my own mind the question of whether 9-11 in itself is art 
or can be more fully understood under the rubric of art. From, from the morning of 9-11 onward, I've been troubled by this question. In other words, I know it can be taken as art under the rubric of art. We can learn something from that. That's what I've done a large part of my life about. But the question whether it is art is a question that does trouble me. The terrace of my apartment has a clear view of lower Manhattan. That morning, I was watching television. I actually was watching a rerun of a uh, Tarzan movie. I remember that. <laughs> when I heard shouts from workmen constructing a, an NYU building on LaGuardia Place, I went on to my terrace. They were gesturing towards the south. I looked south. I, my terrace is right on LaGuardia Place. LaGuardia Place was uh, in a direct line to the trade towers. The first plane used LaGuardia Place as its arrow. I saw the blazing North Tower. I thought it was a horrible accident. I remembered the crash of a small plane into the Empire State Building many years before. I thought it was a horrible accident, but strange that such an accident could happen on such a blue sky clear day. Moments later, I saw a plane flying low make a sharp turn from west to south. Oh my, I said or thought, something banal and full of shock. Then I saw the plane slice into the South Tower as smoothly as a hot knife into butter. Not a sound, a silent movie in full color, a great ball of orange flame and black smoke. You saw the pictures. It was terrifying. It was sublime. It was horrible. It was beautiful. After that, except for about 45 minutes when my wife and I fetched our daughter from school, I stood on my terrace with some neighbors who had come over because they knew of the view. We watched as the towers came down, etc. And number five came down, and number seven came down, etc. What did I do? I offered people something to drink and eat. I told them where the bathroom was. From the terrace, we watched and talked amazed and horrified, excited, scared, fascinated. It'd be very nice for me to say I had all the right reactions. Even when the horrific thing of bodies flying out of the, out of the tower, we had binoculars, we could see that. I wish I could say it simply so horrified me I turned my way away. But I'd seen enough high wire rocks in circuits I had seen enough models. I don't know. It was far away. It was silent. I couldn't stop it. I was not personally responsible for it. So in my own way, I enjoyed it. And so did my neighbors. People walked back and forth between the terrace and the television room. What we were watching was the thing itself. What we heard on TV were explanations, rationalizations, secondary elaborations giving us both a wider horizon with which to comprehend what we were witnessing and guiding us in how we were to comprehend it. And close-ups of events at or near ground zero. I could go on and talk about the aftermath and the uh, searching for people and the missing all those great pathos, but I want to stick with that morning and that day. As I watched both in person and on television, I knew that whatever else it was, I was seeing a spectacle, a live music, movie, real history happening, and so on.
being the academic that I am, I referenced Debord's Society of the Spectacle. And I knew that the jihadists intended it to be thus. That 9-11 was no stealth attack, noticed only by its devastating effects, like anthrax through the mail, poisoned in the water. It was a show and a showing, intended to be a show and a showing. And I was among its intended spectators. And people who support the jihad were among its intended spectators. And we were a divided audience. I'm exploring these possibilities not to validate terrorist actions or insult the memory of the dead and the wounded, but to point out that terrorism at the scale of 9-11 works like art more on states of mind and feeling than on physical destruction. Or if you will, the destruction is the means toward the end of creating terror, which is a state of mind. 9-11 is an example of what Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant called the sublime, arousing in spectators what Aristotle wanted tragedy to arouse, emotions of pity and fear. Or at least this was the reaction from the Western side, Western culture side. Al-Qaeda and its adherents saw in the attack the very wrath of God. Looked at in these ways as event, as shock, as avant-garde art, as tragedy, and or as vengeance, 9-11 performs Artaud's uncanny assertion from his 1938 essay, No More Masterpieces, right on the eve of World War II, quote, we are not free, and the sky can still fall on our heads, and the theater has been created to teach us that, first of all. Thanks. Now, I'd like to, we have a, a 25 minutes or 30 minutes or so where we can have a discussion. And I'd like to have a discussion uh, with you. Uh, I have some things I didn't read. One analysis of how the current economic crisis is the outcome of those attacks so that there were um, uh, real consequences that flo uh, flowed, I think, rather systematically from that event. And that if that event had not infected our imagination, we would not be in the state of economic collapse we are now in. But that's a different thing, and I can read that a little later, but I want to tell you I have that. It's only uh, a paragraph or two. And uh, uh, because that moves it out of the imagination, but into the notion that economics itself is a state of mind. Whether one buys or sells is partly the reality of the market, and the market is partly the reality, the desire to fulfill the desire of the market. So these things, the, 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 the porosity between the imagination and action, which in classic theories of art, uh, mimesis, reality, imitation, doesn't operate. That these are very, very porous boundaries uh, that we're constantly actually moving back and forth uh, between. But uh, I've spoken for like 45, 50 minutes, so I'd like get to hear what you might want to say or question. <laughs>